If you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 15, the very end of the chapter. I love singing with you guys. Uh, Lisa and I are getting to take off this afternoon to go to the Sing Conference in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. It's a great time where Keith and Kristen Getty lead along with lots of other worship leaders from around the country. In fact, Master's Chorale is out there. They took out early this morning. Uh, they're going to be singing at the conference. And so I look forward to giving you maybe just a tiny report of how that went when we get back next week but we're excited about being out there. Please pray for us uh, while we're away. Uh, The title of the message this morning out of Acts chapter 15 is Church Fights. Church Fights. That's what we're looking at. We're not planning to have a fight right now. All right, no brawls, no no, no fighting allowed. But uh, we see one of the very first church fights that ever happened in this passage. I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with it. We've alluded to it a few times in our study already from Acts. And so we're in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. Here's what Luke writes. He says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take him with them, the the one whom had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Father, we want to take a moment and bow our heads and our hearts before you as we anticipate you speaking as you've already spoken through the living word to our own hearts today to help us learn from this disagreement that ended up being a pretty fierce argument that would cause two godly men, men of the faith and men of the word, Paul and Barnabas, to to separate from one another and to go their various ways. God, we know that in church and in our own relationships that sometimes we have a tendency to get involved in disagreements and fights and we're praying that you would teach us what you want us to learn from this passage that we might walk in accordance to your word and at the same time know that you're sovereign over every circumstance and over every situation and even in this development we'll see your sovereign hand at work so be glorified in our time together today we pray in Jesus name amen. Well, church feuds are not uncommon, especially amongst cliques in the congregation. And when the pastor uh, and the worship pastor sometimes get into it, I don't know if you've heard stories like that, but sometimes there's the pastor and the worship director that get into it, apparently uh, a difficult fight can happen. And uh, one such occurrence happened, apparently there was this pastor who was having some behind-the-scenes issues with the worship pastor, and they were kind of fighting, but they decided to go at it in the main service out of all places. And so one week the preacher got up and he preached on commitment and how you should dedicate yourself to service. And then the worship director got up and he led the choir in singing, I shall not be moved. The next Sunday, the preacher preached on giving and tithing and how we should give gladly to the work of the Lord. And the worship director got up and the song he led was, Jesus paid it all. On the next Sunday, the preacher preached on gossiping and how we are to uh, watch our tongues, and the hymn was, I love to tell the story. 
The preacher became disgusted over the situation, and the next Sunday, he told the congregation that he was considering resigning and asked for their prayers as he waited on an answer. The choir then got up and sang, Oh, why not tonight? (laughs) When the preacher resigned the next week, he told the church that Jesus had led him there and that Jesus was taking him away, and the choir then sang, What a friend we have in Jesus. (laughs) It's just awful, isn't it? I read about a church in Texas that debated over the simple issue of should I tell a lie? Some felt that there were some occasions in a specific situational ethic, like at a time of war, where a little white lie or a lie to protect others in that time of danger was acceptable. The others of the church felt that there was never an occasion whatsoever where a lie of any kind would ever be acceptable. The discussion got so heated over time that the church split and one group headed down the road and started a new church. They were known as the lying church while the next church was known as the non-liars. Which one would you have gone to? Now we can debate that later, right? Uh, There's a, a person named Leslie Flynn who wrote a book entitled Great Church Fights. Now I've never read that book Uh, I'd like to after just reading the copy of it and sharing some of these illustrations with you, but I read a little excerpt online about it, and he tells this story about how two porcupines are in the freezing north woods, and they huddle together to keep warm, but as they got really close, then their quills pricked each other, and they had to move apart. They needed each other for the warmth, but they needled each other with their sharp quills. Church members often are like those porcupines. We need each other, but we sometimes also needle each other. You know, the truth is there are many porcupine Christians. They have their good points, but you can't get near them. We all know that we're called to love one another, and it doesn't sound very spiritual to admit that Christians, sometimes as Christians, they're just other Christians we just don't like. Raise your hand if you know of a Christian you don't like. No, don't do it. Don't do it, all right? Sometimes our personalities are different. Sometimes we can be a little bit annoying with our mannerisms. Sometimes you may even think that they do things that are always counter to the way I do things. And of course, I always do it the right way, you might think. And so you cannot get involved in serving the Lord through a local church for very long. You know, if if you are involved serving, you're going to run into somebody whose personality clashes with yours. So the question is, how how do we handle this, right? And it's important to know and to learn that we need to deal with these kinds of situations early on for several reasons. First, the command to love one another is not a minor one. It is the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's inextricably connected with the first commandment, to love God. And John tells us that if we do not love our brother whom we have seen, we cannot love God whom we have never seen. 1 John 4.20. Also, Christian unity is not a minor principle in the Bible. It's a major principle. And Jesus prayed just before his death in John chapter 17 that we would be perfected together in unity so that the world would know that the Father sent him. We can't just shrug that off. We can't just say, oh, it's, it's, it's not a big deal if I don't get along with everybody at church. Also, I've seen many Christians throughout my time as a pastor who get discouraged And they quit serving the Lord as a result of a fight that took place with another church member. 
And sometimes they even grow disillusioned or so cynical about the Christian life or the Christian faith because of the fight that they experienced or they observed in a local church setting, and they get hurt, and so they wrongly conclude that Christianity doesn't work, that Christians are just hypocrites, and they quit coming to church. And so it's important for us to learn what the Bible teaches about dealing with personality differences so that the evil one does not derail you from following the Lord Jesus and loving your neighbor. And so for our time together this morning, we're going to see how that, that, that Luke, the writer of Acts, honestly reports a fight that occurred between two great men, Paul and Barnabas. And frankly, it's not a pretty picture. It may be nice to just kind of put a spin on this and be like, oh, well, they just kind of disagreed a little bit, but they still love each other and they hugged each other and they kind of went away saying, I'll see you later. But that's not how it happened. That's not how it happened in the language. That's not how it happened in the observance that we make in this particular text this morning. And it, it is amazing how clear and transparent the Bible really is about this issue. We, we can't assume, however, from a few occurrences later in uh, the parts of the New Testament that there was reconciliation that took place and there was no lingering bitterness. But the fight did lead up to a rupture in the close working relationship between these two godly men. Barnabas passes off the record of Acts after this chapter. We don't read about him anymore in the book of Acts where Paul will continue and will follow what happens to him. And you can't help but think that later on in their own life that they may have reflected on this and thought about how maybe they could have handled it differently. There are times when division seems inevitable, but even in those times, God is at work. That's the encouraging part. Even when division seems inevitable, we know that God is at work. And while we can never justify our own sin, if we are angry or selfish or prideful, and that's part of the separation, we can never justify that. But sometimes divisions and separations can and do fit into God's greater plan if we move forward with love and grace and at least have a heart to reconcile. There are definitely lessons that we can learn from this church split and the lessons are not all bad. So today I want you to see three things that we can learn even in the midst of the clashing of the personalities between Paul and Barnabas. Number one, we'll look at the seriousness of discipleship. Number two, the sharp disagreement. And then number three, the sovereign development. So let's start with number one, the seriousness of discipleship. And that first blank, if you are taking notes, just says a deep desire to get back on the mission field. Paul has a deep desire to get back at it. And we read that in verse 36, and it says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return. Now just pause right there. Let us return. Now remember... Acts chapter 15 is all about the Jerusalem council. We spent three weeks looking at what happened in the Jerusalem, at the Jerusalem council, where the question had arisen from the Judaizers, is circumcision and following the Mosaic law a prerequisite for salvation? And the answer that the Jerusalem council came to was a resounding no, that we're not going to require circumcision or following the Mosaic law as a part of salvation. Salvation is, has been, and always will be an act of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. 
And with this doctrinal clarity also came some practical applications to encourage unity between the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles. And if you look up at verses 28 and 29, you will see a summary of the decisions that were made by the apostles and elders of the Jerusalem Council. Keep in mind, these arguments and decisions were made by Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James, who was the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the summary there in verse 28, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden. Just pause right there. So in verse 28, as a letter is now written from the council in Jerusalem and delivered to Antioch, they're saying, hey, we got great news for you. We're not going to place on you any greater burden, meaning you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow the Mosaic law perfectly. Those things are not going to be requirements, but we do have three requirements. And I would say you could almost label those as requests that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well, farewell. We talked a lot about what those things mean in detail the last few weeks. And so now that it is crucial to understand that salvation was based on faith alone and Christ alone. That, would be, that had been clearly decided. And so now that that main argument of is salvation based on works or faith, and they always knew it was faith, but they're just reminding the Jews, hey, it's faith in Christ, not your Old Testament rituals or your traditions. Now that we have that sorted out, we need to get back to what we do best. And what we do best isn't argue in-house, but what we do best is go outside of these walls and communicate gospel truths to other people, and Paul's just itching to get back on the mission field. He's tired being cooped up with the council, debating things that he knows to be true, and he wants to get back out to do what it is that God called him to do. And that's why in verse 36, again, he says, after some days, and after some days, again, we don't know exactly how long that was. Most of the commentaries state that this period of time would have been anywhere from a few days to a few weeks to a few months. But what does seem apparent is that Paul is eager to get back on the mission field. Look what he says again there in verse 36. He says to Barnabas, let us return or let us go back to. And I don't believe that Paul was necessarily bored in Antioch. I mean, he had been involved in theological debates that we just discussed, teaching and preaching the word, and he had been faithfully shepherding the flock. But remember, Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, and there were more Gentiles who had not yet been reached. And it simply was not in Paul to remain in one place for very long. He had a desire and a passion and a drive that kept him going no matter what. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So he has this, this sentimentality in his heart. I am called to preach the gospel. I know God has called me to go preach the gospel, not only here in Antioch, which is in Syria, but all throughout the area. And so he's, he's got this incredible passion. And I, I think we should just pause for a second and just say, well, where did this passion and this commitment come from? Why was Paul always so excited about preaching gospel truths? And obviously we could say it came from God. He had a, a special calling. He, he was an apostle. And Paul had, he had a desire to fulfill his responsibility. He, he had a desire to go to Rome. He had a desire to go to Spain. He had a desire to go to the ends of the earth to preach Christ. And where does that desire come from? Well, it comes from, I believe, a person spending time in the word of God. 
When you spend time in the Word of God, and you spend time pouring over the Scripture, and you spend time in prayer, and you spend time thinking through how you can maintain a clear conscience, that was another big emphasis Paul gives about maintaining a clear conscience, which means he wants to walk in the truth, doesn't want to walk in error. He wants to know where he's sinned and confess that and make sure he's always right with, Lord, with the Lord. In fact, he says in um, Acts 24, 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. A clear conscience comes from confessing all known sin. A, a clear conscience comes from walking in obedience to God's word. A, a clear conscience comes from searching the scriptures and praying like David did in Psalm 139, where he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, the, the desire to be a missionary typically comes from the maturity of a Christian who's growing in faith to the degree that they're willing to say, I'm going to give my whole life to this. Now, again, we're all called to be missionaries. I'm not trying to say a pastor or a missionary somehow on a higher plane than any believer, right? We're all called, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, to love God so much that you would say, you know, I don't care anymore about what my friends think about me, what my coach thinks about me, what my teacher thinks about me. I'm going to stand up for Christ because I got to get back to work. And the real work God's called me to, whether I'm the Apostle Paul or just you as an ambassador of Christ today is that I need to make sure I'm in the word maintaining a clear conscience. I mean, when you maintain a clear conscience, then you have a great joy. And when you have a great joy, you have an incredible passion. And when you have an incredible passion, you're being aided in a special spirit-filled anointing to carry out God's design for you to be a minister of the gospel. You are to be a soldier in the army of Christ. You are to be salt and light. You are to be filled with the spirit and faithful to the word. You are to be a herald of the truth, an ambassador of Christ, and a servant of the king. So when you read something about Paul just itching to get back at it, I hope that makes you just itch a little bit yourself. Like, man, I need to get back at it. I've been a little weak in my testimony. I've been a little soft-spoken. I've been a little skittish. I've been tucking my tail. Uh-uh, not Plasterita Bible Church. We're going after it. Come on, I'm getting fired up by these, these people going down to the abortion clinic and just out there just, just calling out, just calling out, hey, we love you. We've got resources for you. We want to help you. We can, we can help you with that. I love that. Just getting out of our comfort zone and getting out there on the front lines, and you can do that. You don't have to do it on Saturday at the abortion clinic. Do it in your class this week for you public school kids. <laughs> do it in class this week, for you Christian school kids, so you think all those Christians at your Christian school are so-called Christians or believers, we know that there's always opportunity in any setting, even for the homeschool kids, as you relate and interact, right? We all, I'm just saying, wherever we are, in any setting, at any moment, let's have that passionate concern to share the gospel. And I, I can't help but think when I think about Paul going out of one of my favorite missionaries, Hudson Taylor, the great 19th century English missionary to China, you want to hear his heart to get out, to go back into the mission field? This is what Hudson Taylor said, quote, I have a stronger desire than ever to go to China. That land is ever in my thoughts. Think of it. 360 million souls without God or hope in the world. Think of millions of our fellow creatures dying every year without any consolation of the gospel. 
In China, year by year, millions are dying. Poor, neglected China, scarcely anyone cares about it. I mean, that's the kind of passion that Hudson Taylor had. This is the kind of passion we're reading in Acts that Paul and even Barnabas had. And this kind of passion, again, it just doesn't just come out of thin air. It comes from you committing yourself to the study of Scripture, to the, to the desire to be faithful to God. This, this kind of evangelistic fervor doesn't come from taking a methodology class on evangelism. There's many different methodologies. It comes from knowing and loving Christ so deeply that some of his love and his call for lost sinners begins to flow through you as you preach the word. And knowing Christ comes from studying his word, and it's through that study that we understand 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So you behold the glory of God in his word, you become transformed into a more faithful servant, and God's going to give you that itch where you're like, I need to get back at it. You got to be thinking, even right now, hey, there's somebody at work. I have a family member. There's somebody I need to get back at it with in gospel-centered conversations because my work's not done yet. That's a little bit of what, what Paul's experiencing there. He's, he's ready to get back at it. The second thing I want to say to you, not only is there a deep desire to get back on the mission field, but we also see a focus on visitation and discipleship. It's a focus on visitation and discipleship. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. It's more than just the frontline evangelism work going on. There's a discipleship work going on. And although Paul was perhaps the greatest missionary and evangelist the world has ever known, he certainly didn't fulfill the modern day 20th and 21st century stereotype. When we think of evangelism today, we oftentimes think of the Billy Graham Crusades, or we think of Louis Palau, or we think here in Southern California of a Harvest Crusade. And I think all of those have been mightily used by God. I have attended some of those events and have been very encouraged. But what I like about what's going on here is sometimes we think, you know, that the evangelism just goes out in those big crusades, and then sometimes there's not an adequate emphasis on or amount of follow-up. There may be the faithful preaching of the gospel, but sometimes it's hard to know exactly how the follow-up really happens in the lives of people, and that's a question we often have. And so Paul is not like a 20th or 21st century evangelist. He's just a first century evangelist. And the way his evangelism works is he goes to the area of Galatia and plants churches on missionary trip number one. Guess where he's going to go on missionary trip number two? back to the same area to visit the same churches and the same thing on missionary trip number three. Now, on each trip, he hits a few new places, but he's always going back to those same people at those same places because as a biblical evangelist, Paul understood that his responsibility was not only to proclaim the gospel, but it was also to establish churches. And it was through the churches that discipleship would now be taking place. And part of the Great Commission isn't just preaching the gospel one and done. It is shepherding and discipling new converts. I mean, turn back with me, if you will, to the Great Commission passage in Matthew chapter 28 to make sure you see it coming straight from Scripture. The Great Commission, Jesus says in Matthew 28, just look at verses 19 and 20. He says, go therefore and make, what? 
You know, you don't have to turn there. Go and make what? Disciples. He doesn't say go make converts. He doesn't say go make decisions. He says go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then what? What else is with that idea of baptizing people into Christ and water baptism as true believers, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you? What does that sound like? That's more than just preaching the gospel, come to Christ. It's also teaching as you come to Christ, you need to obey Christ. You need to walk with Christ. You need to be sanctified. And I am with you to the end of the age, Jesus said. And so our calling here in the Great Commission is to make disciples, again, not just to make decisions. And our calling is to teach them about the importance of baptism. And our calling is to teach them in the Great Commission about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a whole lot of theology, Christology, and pneumatology. Right? Our calling is to teach them to observe or to obey all that Christ commanded. And we are to do that work until Jesus comes back. And so it's not surprising then when Paul was planning to go back and visit the brothers in every city where they proclaimed the word of the Lord. Paul wanted to go back and see how they're doing and what questions do they have and what problems have arisen and how are the elders that have been appointed doing and shepherding the flock and how could he be a blessing and an encouragement to these new growing Christians And so Paul wanted to go back. He wanted to go back to Salamis and to Paphos, which were both on the Isle of Cyprus. He wanted to return to Perga and Pamphylia. He wanted to go to Antioch, which was in Pisidia. And he wanted to visit Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. Paul loved those new Christians in those areas, and he viewed them as his own spiritual children. And he expressed that love to the Philippian believers when he wrote in Philippians 1.8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The beautiful reminder, I, I yearn for you. I just wanna be with you and have that kind of fellowship that we talked about last week and I wanna open up God's word and I wanna be with you and help you grow. And what we also see in the importance here of Paul being with people is that he, just, he, he really liked, he, he learned to like people. I think he did. He says that in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. You might be familiar with that passage where he says, we were so affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Remember that? 1 Thessalonians 2, 8. I wanted to preach the gospel, but I just wanted to share our own life together. Life on life. I want to be with you. And as I'm with you, we're going to share Christ together because you've become very dear to us. And again, in 1 Thessalonians 2.17, he says, But since we were torn away from you, my brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Remember last week we talked about don't just be texting, put down your pen. Sometimes you need to be with them. How? Face to face. Face to face, he was longing to be with them. And so discipleship is definitely an element of ministry that is missing in some contemporary evangelism. And I believe that one of the main reasons that Paul wanted to revisit the new converts was that he knew that the most effective evangelistic strategy of all was to build them up. 
He knew that not only is it about plowing new ground, it's about encouraging the ground that had been plowed where the seed had been planted and the plants are coming up. Because being and building mature believers is the call of every minister of the gospel. It's Ephesians 4.12. It is, we're supposed to be involved in the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry that builds up the body of Christ. Jesus showed us this strategy as he spent the majority of his time ministering by pouring into 12 men. More time than he ever spent preaching, more time than he ever spent going into the Decapolis. Well, he spent a lot of time doing that. He spent with these 12 men investing. It's these 12 men that are gonna change the world. You know, not them, but the message that they bring. And the goal isn't to make a bunch of baby Christians. The goal is to make mature Christians and mature Christians, get this, mature Christians reproduce. Mature Christians began to reproduce others among themselves as they now get it and as they catch on fire and as they maintain a clear conscience and as they have the joy of the Lord, which is their strength, they are reproducing themselves. So if you want to reach a lot of people, it's not just one person going out always to new people. It's us doing that plus discipling those who have come to faith. And that was clearly Paul's philosophy is if we get everybody maturing in Christ, like he said in Colossians 1.28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That was his passion. Just as much as to make new Christians, which again, it's always the sovereign spirit of God calling people out of darkness into light through the preaching of the word. So he's helping be a part of that process. God's doing the work, but Paul's being faithful, but he wanted them to grow. He wanted them to mature. He wanted them to grow and mature because as they grow and mature, they can't help but tell somebody else. They can't help it. It's not like immature people are sharing the gospel. It's mature people who are saying, you know what? I need to tell them about Jesus. I need to have a conversation with that Christian who is struggling about how they can honor God in that situation. It's called discipleship. It's called shepherding. It's called biblical counseling. It's walking together hand in hand. And so this is what Paul's eager to do. And so now we see the seriousness of discipleship. Let's look at our second point this morning, the sharp disagreement, because I know that's what you really want to hear about. All right, you're like, tell me about the fight, Adam. What happened with the fight? I mean, yeah, we're behind you. Gospel, missions, let's do it. What about the fight you were talking about? What happened? All right, well, let's look at it. Here's the problem. Your next blank, the problem. Verse 37 and 38. Here's what we read. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. All right, well, here's the problem. What's going on? Barnabas wanted to take on the second missionary journey. They're getting ready for it. They've been out once. They resolve stuff at the Jerusalem Council. We got to get back out on the field. And so Paul's eager to go and Barnabas suggests, and then he says it rather emphatically, he wanted to take John Mark on this second missionary journey, but Paul didn't want him to come. And the reason Paul didn't want him to come, as the text said, is that John Mark had abandoned them on the first missionary journey Again, we don't know exactly why he left, but if you look back at Acts 13, turn back there with me if you will, Acts 13, 
verses 13 and 14. This is Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. John Mark was with them. They had just traveled through Cyprus and through a couple of cities there, and then they head up to the area of Perga. And here's what we read, Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. He just left. He walked out on them. And they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day when they were in the synagogue, they sat down and, and Paul preaches his longest sermon there in Antioch of Pisidia. So the question in verse 13, 13, 13 is why did John Mark leave? Some suggest that he didn't want to get sick. When we studied through this a few months ago, we said that it's possible that this area was known to have malaria and maybe Paul got malaria and he talks about other ongoing sickness that he had. It's possible they didn't spend long in Perga because then they trekked up the Taurus Mountains where it would have been higher elevation so that Paul could recover. So one possible reason is that John Mark didn't want to get sick. He didn't want to trek those mountains. The Taurus Mountains were also notorious not only being a strenuous climb but having uh, bandits along the way where they could get robbed or mugged and still others say that John Mark was just homesick for his mama. And he wanted to go back to Jerusalem, so he did. What we do know is that Barnabas wanted to give John Mark a second chance. And after all, John Mark was his cousin. So we get back to 37, verse 15, chapter 15, verse 37, when it says Barnabas wanted, that word could be translated that he desired the verb where it says in verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark, it's desire. And the verb is in the imperfect tense, which indicates that Barnabas was insistent about John Mark coming. The imperfect tense means it's not yet a completed action. So he keeps doing it, keeps saying it multiple times because he's insisting. And at the same time, Paul was just as adamant that he not come back. In fact, that NASB says in verse 38, Paul, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them. The fact that Barnabas would champion John Mark is certainly no surprise. Family ties are often strong. But even more, Barnabas was the kind of person who eagerly tried to help others, which is why the early church called him the son of encouragement. He was ready to give John Mark another opportunity to serve the Lord and to prove himself. So that's what the problem is. John, Mark is wanting to go. Barnabas says, let's bring him. Paul says, let's don't do it. That's the problem. And this impasse led to a paroxysm. A paroxysm, it's your next blank. Probably saying the word wrong. How do you say it? Paroxysm? How do you say it, baby? Am I saying it right? She's like, don't look at me. All right, let's do that. It's not a common word, so I had to look it up in the English language, right? The word paroxysm means a sudden attack. It means a violent expression of a particular emotion or activity. The word in the original language, in the Greek, a sharp disagreement, this word would be translated, could be translated as extreme irritation or exasperation. Classical Greek medical writers use the word to describe a sudden violent spasm, such as a body-racking cough or an epileptic seizure. What I'm trying to say is that this was not a minor disagreement. I told you in the language we see this was a violent disagreement. Now, I'm not saying they were duking it out, all right, boxing match here, but I'm saying it was a very harsh disagreement just by the word and the language itself. It was not minor. This most likely was not a cordial exchange. 
This wasn't a kind of mutual respect given or communicated or demonstrated. The air grew thick with passion as each man convulsed with fiery emotion in response to the other. In fact, the same word is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in a very strong and aggressive way in the context of God's wrath. That word again, used uh, to translate Deuteronomy 29, 28, This says, and the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and in great wrath caused them to go to another land. We see the word sharp disagreement used again, irritation or exasperation in Deuteronomy, or excuse me, Jeremiah 32, 37. I listed those references for you where we read, behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. Just looking at how that word is used in a few other passages. It's just showing us that this disagreement was irritable and it was significant and it was between two patriarchs, if you will, of the new covenant, Paul and Barnabas. And Paul may have thought that because John Mark had deserted them that this was a mark of weakness. The ministry was simply too important And the work was too demanding to enlist someone who had proven to be unreliable in the past. So as the discussion continued, it turned into a real argument, and it seemed like the only solution was for the friends to divide the territory and go their separate ways. There's no mention of a hug. There's no mention of we'll catch up later. There's nothing like that. It it wasn't even a we degree to disagree. At least that's not what's indicated in, in the type of language that's used here. You know, it's Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10 says, by insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. So there's something we can learn as we're looking at this very difficult rupture, splitting apart, tearing apart. In fact, that's their next blank. There was a sharp disagreement which led to the parting, the parting of ways. Verse 39 There it says, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. They're separating from each other. Since each party would not give in to the other, the two men founded independent teams and headed off in different directions. The text says, again, that there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. The word separate here in this verse means to divide. It means to be swept aside. It means to part asunder. The root word for separate is used in Matthew 1.19 to speak of divorce. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce, there's our word to separate, to divorce her quietly. And so the word is used in some places to talk about how the heavens were split apart or how the sky was rent. And the Bible does not use soft language here to cover up a minor disagreement. This was a sharp disagreement, and it tore Paul and Barnabas apart, and they left on completely different sides of the issue. They left convinced that they were right and the other person was wrong, and they most likely walked away stinking mad at each other. So the obvious question that might arise in your mind this morning is, well, who was right? Was it Paul? Or was it Barnabas? I think it's natural that we might ask that question seeing the situation. Well, the scripture does not tell us who is right. And most of the commentaries would say something like they were both right and they were both wrong. 
Kent R. Hughes, well-known commentator, says that in his mind, where he says, his mind goes with Paul, but his heart goes with Barnabas. So you can appreciate it. It's kind of hard. You're there like, well, which, which way's the best decision here? Logically, Paul seems to be right, but when you factor in the opportunity for growth and second chances, Barnabas is definitely leaning in on that side of the equation. Well, if you were to really force me to say more on the issue, I would say that the evidence seems to maybe favor Paul. Think about it just for a moment. This is kind of an aside, not, not a major deal, but this is just some conclusions that I read this week. Paul was an apostle and Barnabas was not. Jesus had personally revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus and called him to preach the gospel. He had shown up to him and called him, and so he is a called apostle. And as a direct apostle called by Christ, Paul technically has rank over Barnabas. And Barnabas was a faithful teacher, and Barnabas was a great encourager, Barnabas was a kindred spirit, but I don't believe that Barnabas would be able to justify disagreeing with Paul and not submitting to his leadership. A second reason I might side with Paul would be that it, is, uh, it was Paul and his new traveling companion Silas who were actually affirmed by the church of Antioch. Look at verse 40. After they split and go their own ways, it says, but Paul chose Silas and departed and having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So there's a little affirmation where the church of Antioch says, hey, we commend Paul and Silas, but there's no language there of the church commending Barnabas and John Mark in their mission. So it would be a second thought to consider. One final reason would simply be that it would be unwise, in my opinion, for Barnabas to insist that John Mark come along if he knew that Paul couldn't trust him. This would be setting up a potential stumbling block. It would be a possible deterrent to their unity. If anything went wrong here or there for any reason, dissension or further desertion was likely to bring about an even more hazardous effect upon the mission. So those are just some things to consider. Let me at least encourage you in that even in this sharp disagreement, there is, number three in our outline, there's a sovereign development of Almighty God. There's a sovereign development that happens even in this situation. And your next blank says, Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus. That would be John Mark. Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus. The very end of verse 39, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And so Barnabas takes John Mark and he goes back to the island of Cyprus. This is where Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey had started. If you remember, Barnabas was actually from Cyprus and no doubt he wanted to go back to that area. He had kinfolk there and his heart was really heavy for the Isle of Cyprus. And just because uh, the Antioch church didn't officially lay their hands on him and send him out like they did Paul and Barnabas the first time doesn't mean that Barnabas was somehow doing something wrong. In fact, Barnabas and Mark were doing the Lord's work and no doubt preaching the same gospel and the same Jesus and the same emphasis on repentance and faith in Christ alone. And although Paul and Barnabas never ministered together again, we know that Paul and Barnabas eventually did reconcile their differences. The apostle Paul owed much to Barnabas and it appears that they remained friends despite their contention over Mark and we read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 
So while Barnabas isn't mentioned again in the book of Acts, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is giving an argument there about how ministers should be earn their living from the gospel and you shouldn't muzzle the ox while they're treading out their grain. And then he makes this comment in 1 Corinthians 9, 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So his simple point is, it's okay for ministers of the gospel to be paid to preach. That's what he's trying to say. And when he says that, he says, just like Barnabas and I have been doing. This is years later. So it seems like he's speaking of Barnabas in a positive light. The fact that Paul mentioned Barnabas in a favorable way shows that he carried no bitterness or ill will toward Barnabas. And the fact is, Paul is actually upholding Barnabas as a good example of a faithful teacher who should be paid for his gospel ministry. We also see that John Mark, who was in a sense the cause of the trouble, later became a trusted companion of Paul. Colossians 4.10, we read, it says that his fellow, that um, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, uh, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Later on, writing to the church of Colossae, sending greetings along with Aristarchus, and he says, and Mark, remember Mark, the cousin of, of, uh, of Barnabas, he also sends his greetings. So that's a positive way. We see him referring to John Mark in the future. A little bit later, we read, this is even more clear, 2 Timothy 4, 11, 2 Timothy 4, 11, Luke alone is with me, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Well, that settles it right there. 2 Timothy 4.11 is very clear that somewhere past this date of the Acts date that Paul wants John Mark to come join him. And he says, he's actually useful for me for ministry. And we also read about how John Mark became a close associate of Peter. In fact, 1 Peter 5.13 says, she who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings and so does Mark, my son. So again, Peter's writing to the church. He is a code word, uses Babylon. He's probably writing to the church of Rome and he's sending them greetings along with his associate, John Mark, who is, Peter considers him as his spiritual son. By the way, don't forget that John Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. Mark was not an apostle, but is thought of as an amenuesis who wrote the gospel of Mark from Peter's perspective. So all that to say that Mark may have messed up once in abandoning Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but Mark makes it through that process of growing and maturing and becomes a formidable force in the kingdom of God. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that Satan's attempts to hinder and spread the gospel backfired. Now there are two missionary teams on the field where before there was only one and the missionary impact had actually doubled instead of being cut in half God's work in the midst of disaster difficulty and division God's always working God is at work behind the scene in spite of our pride our passions and our plans God takes our flounderings and our fiascos and our failures and somehow he uses them for his glory That's what's so cool about being a Christian. Like the way they parted, I don't think was necessarily a God glorifying part, but God used it 
and he used it in Mark's life, and he used it in Paul's life, and Barnabas, and of course Silas is part of Paul's new team. So it's just all incredible how God still uses this sharp disagreement for his glory. The first missionary team, Barnabas and John Mark. The second missionary team, your next blank, is Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas who go to Syria and Cilicia. So we read there in verses 40 and 41, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And so Paul's new partner is Silas. He had been one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. Remember the Jerusalem council made their decision. They, they sent it by a letter Earlier in the same chapter, verse 22 of Acts 15, then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And so they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So Silas was a leading leader of the Jerusalem church. He was a faithful church leader who had a suitable uh, ministry pedigree. And he was actively involved in mission work is Paul wants to get him involved with him. And so we read here in Acts 15.32, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. So we know that Silas is faithful, doctrinally pure. He's a prophet. He can preach. And so as a prophet, Silas was more than a than capable to proclaim and teach God's word, Silas also was a Jew, which would have made it easy for him to enter into the synagogues. And according to Acts 16.37, Silas was a Roman citizen like Paul, and this would help provide protection and civil benefits. Silas was there at the Jerusalem Council. He was a clear and passionate about the salvation through grace and by faith alone. And so since Barnabas and John Mark were heading to Cyprus, there was no need for Paul and Silas to head in the exact same direction. So Paul chose instead to travel through Syria and Cilicia, and he would end up in that same general area of Galatia from the opposite direction. So many of these churches that had been planted by Paul earlier, and they were now able to travel through them in these same areas in order to, as the last part of 41 says, in order to strengthen the churches. They're going to go back and visit, and then we'll see on missionary trip number two, they're going to go to some new areas as well. God may change his personnel, but his plan goes on. He may change the people, but the evangelism and discipleship goes on. And imperfect as they may be, two missionary teams would cover more ground than one. And if God had to depend on perfect people to accomplish his work, he would never be able to get anything done. Our limitations and imperfections are good reasons for us to depend on the grace of God, for our sufficiency is from him alone. 2 Corinthians 3.5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Referring to Paul and Barnabas, Warren Wearsby reminds us that quote there on the back of your uh, question page says, here are two dedicated men who have just helped bring unity to the church and yet they could not settle their own disagreements. Disturbing and painful as these conflicts are, they are often found in church history and yet God is able to overrule them and accomplish his purposes. So I want you to look at this take-home section. Let's just walk away with just a little bit more application. Can we do that today? Number one there, that first point says, when involved in a dispute, 
pray for the ability to see both sides rather than just your own. You want to learn something this morning? Well, Paul had a good perspective and Barnabas had a good perspective. And the problem was each person never, from what we can tell, really saw it from the other person's point of view. A patient, humble, and godly person And again, I'm not trying to overly critique Paul and Barnabas. What they did is what they did. I'm just saying, what can we learn from this? And I would just say a patient, humble, and godly person will seek to see and to understand the other's point of view. And when you work hard to do this in the midst of a dispute, it will help tremendously. And unfortunately, in the heat of the battle, patience and grace go out the window. And what we want overshadows what we know to be right. And our rights and our desires have been violated. When that happens, we want justice and to be recognized as having the upper hand. And if our viewpoint has been ignored or unvalidated, we often move to make the goal being to prove ourselves instead of just to honor the Lord. And it doesn't always come back to that, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. You're in the midst of an argument. You're heated. They're heated. You may or may not be in true sinful anger, but boy, it's sure getting hot. And in that moment, you should just stop and think, hey, my goal right now is to be pleasing to the Lord. Am I? In this moment, am I remembering Philippians 2, 3 through 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves, let each one of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. How we need to remember that in the midst of conflict. And I just wonder if Paul ever looked back on the conflict he had with Barnabas and thought how he could have potentially handled it better. Are you involved in any ongoing conflict today? And where Where can you learn from this passage what maybe God would want you to learn to try to see it from the other person's perspective and to value their input and their perspective because it's probably a noble one. Secondly, when both sides of an issue have reasonable support, seek a wise compromise. When it comes to biblical doctrine, the word compromise is an ugly word. We don't compromise on the gospel of grace, but when it comes to the practical things of life and how we live it out, that's where compromise can be a good and healthy direction to go. And since there is no doctrinal debate at stake in this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, maybe they could have considered some type of compromise. Again, I don't know. I'm not there. I'm not an apostle. I'm just saying in a similar situation, wouldn't there be some way you could say, let's figure out a way to work this out? I've already told you that I think that maybe Barnabas could have just said, all right, Paul, you know, you're, you're the lead apostle. This is what you want. Maybe we'll check in on, Paul, uh, on uh, John Mark later and let's go. You know, it could, have, it could have been, he could have just said, you know what, maybe later we try it. It's not the time right now if you're not ready for that. I, I don't know. But there's always some type of compromise that maybe could be pursued. Thirdly, if a conflict persists, don't give up. Stay at it to resolve it if at all possible. What I don't think is overly encouraging is when people just walk away. Have a heated discussion. You're mad and angry at each other. You've used some choice words and you walk away. That's the part I would say, if that's your habit, then we need to help you learn and grow to follow Christ, right? Don't let the sun go down on your anger, Ephesians 4, 
We want to we work it out. Again, if we're fighting in a sinful way, maybe there is a time to step away because there's sinful activity and words. It's like, hey, we can't do this right now, so let's come back when we have the right frame of mind, starting off hopefully seeking forgiveness. In it. But I would encourage you, the point I'm trying to make is stay at it until you resolve it in a godly way. God will honor your faithfulness to try. And so I would encourage you towards that way. And, you know, may God help us as a church as we consider this is a church fight and this is going down. May God just give us wisdom. We, we need to obey these same principles as elders. There's times in an elder meeting where we have Ratherly, you know, rather warm conversations about certain aspects and nuances of what we see. You know, I, I would say I don't think we've ever, um, I, I can't remember a time where it just got so out of hand. I felt like, man, you know, we've totally lost it here. You know, but, but I have seen men on occasion just say, hey, forgive me if, you, if I'm speaking too strong. I wanted to say what I wanted to say. And so I just always see a humbleness with that passion and that fire. And I really appreciate that. Because when you've got a lot of strong men together, you're going to have a lot of strong thoughts about how to handle it and you know the same thing happens in your marriage and it happens with your strong-willed teenage kids mm, it can happen right <laughs> I'm not talking about us I'm just saying in general right we all know what what that can be like we do we know what it can be like and so the idea is like let's keep talking let's keep moving forward and then the blessing of this text is let's see how God's going to use it there's a sovereign development from this chaotic event that's going to be a blessing to the glory of God as we seek to pursue biblical reconciliation and the glory of Christ in all things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we can be encouraged, even though it's difficult at times to see a fight like this go down between Paul and Barnabas. And, and yet, God, we know that there's ways that you orchestrated the outcome of their impasse in a way that would glorify you and get John Mark involved a little bit later and get Silas involved and how, how Paul could uh, speak highly of both Barnabas and John Mark later in the scripture. So we're so thankful to see that it did come full circle. And we're praying, God, that you would help us not to get involved in church fights. Uh, we really are. We're praying that while we just assume that as elders and our, even our deacon team and other ministry leaders here might always just be godly men and women who never struggle, Lord, we all struggle. And we, we're just asking for your blessing. We're asking for a spirit of unity. We're asking for a spirit of humility. We're asking that you would help us know when to fight and when that we do need to pursue some type of compromise that would glorify you. And so we pray, God, that you would allow each one of us as church leaders, as married husband and wives, as teenagers, as, as young adults, God, that, that each person here today would just walk away saying, there's a lot I have to learn and there's a lot I want to apply in principle uh, from what I've learned today that would help me go forth and, and, and that we would have that itch, that we want to get back to work, being gospel preachers and being disciple makers. And so help us to do that all for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.